Hello there, space fans. Robin, chief of content of Supercluster here. I have a very special guest on the podcast today. Someone I call a friend and a colleague in the space industry. She is an artist. She is a former astronaut for NASA. She flew on two shuttle missions, Discovery, and off the top of my head, I was going to try to remember this, Nicole, STS-128 and STS-133. Yes, Did I get it right? Welcome to the show. You and I have known each other a, a few years now. You've been on the Supercluster podcast before. You interviewed Felicity Jones from the Star Wars movie Rogue One. I did. That was so much fun, Rob. That was really, really fun. <laughs> I also went back and looked a couple years ago. Uh, Alex Lynn, our senior reporter, she interviewed you for a piece on psychology and astronautics, which was such an interesting piece and it got such great feedback. Hopefully we could touch on a couple of those things during our conversation today. But the big topic for discussion today, Nicole, is you have a book coming out in just about a week. Are you excited? I am excited. And I just got, you know, I'm holding it up to show you. Over, yes. <laughs> Over the airwaves here. Yeah, I just got the hard copies on, or some of the hard copies on Friday, I think. Oh, that's yeah, really, really exciting. The and book it's is so called, cool. the so book cool. is called Back to Earth. What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet and Our Mission to Protect It. And it's just hearing that title and subtitle, it gets me excited because we need to have more conversations like this about space and Earth, the role of Earth as our home, and what our philosophies in space exploration, what that has taught us about how we look at our home planet. And Nicole, I think that in our past conversations, we've always talked about your art and artistry. Can you tell us what about the earth inspires you the most? Wow, everything. <laughs> I mean, the view of it from space was certainly inspirational. I think that you can't deny it when you look at it from that perspective. I think that it is just this wonderfully naturally placed life support system for us right? That we tend to, we tend to take for granted, right? We just kind of go about our daily lives, taking all of what it does for us for granted. And I think that going to space and living on this mechanical life support system, you know, the space station that, you know, what have we done? We've purposely built it in a way to mimic as best we can what earth does for us naturally. It's interesting to me, we go and we live in this mechanical place and every day as a crew, as an international crew, uh, working together peacefully, successfully, we are acutely aware of, oh, imagine things like this, how much CO2 is in our atmosphere, right? how much clean drinking water we have, the integrity of our thin metal hull, and the health and well-being of all of our crewmates, because we know that we have to do those things to survive, right? And, and you, you know, can't uh, live without those No, you, you, you have to right. do it, like too much CO2 in there, and it's you don't just get a headache. I mean, you can die. Right. Not enough water, you can die. Holes in your spaceship, you can die. You know all those, right. all those kinds of not not taking care of each other. It's it's not a good thing. And so, and I know it's it's orders of magnitude, right? It's this huge scale to talk about a space station and then compare it to a planet. Which, by the way, that's another thing. You're like, oh my gosh, we live on a planet, right? Uh, spaceship Earth. <laughs> spaceship Earth. You know, we don't think about that very often either. And these very simple things like, hmm, how much CO2 is in my atmosphere? Why is it there? What do I need to do to manage that? 
those kinds of things become very real on a mechanical spaceship. And they can be very real for us here on Earth. And we can figure out how to overcome the challenge of it by working together the same way that we do on that space station and with our ground support teams, you know, across across the planet supporting us. Now, Nicole, I heard that next month that you're going to be speaking at the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow. This is true? Yes, this is true. Are you going to be, I mean, obviously you're going to be discussing this, but one theme of your book is that it's not the planet that's in danger. It's, <laughs> it's us. Is that what you're going to explain to them there? That will certainly be part of it. And I think that's something we all tend to miss, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the earth will recover in spite of us. It might not do it in time for us. Right. <laughs> you know, if we keep damaging the aspects of it that do support our life, but in the grand scheme of things, it, it will recover from us. Yeah, that's a big message. And so thankful to be in, in, invited to participate in the COP26 activities. And it's weird because that came not, you know, not directly as, ooh, let's invite Nicole the astronaut, but it was right. Nicole the astronaut working on art things with the Space for Art Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> and that brought me there. That's amazing. Yeah. You talked about this mechanical life support. The International Space Station has been such a a sharp end of the stick for space exploration research and, and science for the last mm-hmm. 20 years. How does ISS research contribute to some of the stuff here on Earth that we face? Some of our bigger challenges like water and air pollution, mm-hmm. even things like cancer. I mean, we always say, well, there's ways that space science can help us here on Earth, whether it comes to the human being. Is there a couple of examples or is there a sector of science that has benefited greatly from what's been going on at the space station? Well, I think, you know, it's one of those questions that you can answer. You can get down into the minutia right. and, or you can look at it from you know, the the standpoint of, that's why I love the motto for the space station, this whole idea of off the earth for the earth, right? Because everything about what we're doing up there is ultimately about improving life on earth. And certainly it's helping us extend our presence, you know, to live in low earth orbit, to go find our way back to the moon, establish a permanent presence there, get further out into our solar system. And then I have these dreams of that day where you know, the Star Trek reality will be something that we all know. Um, right. Maybe not me. I'm older than you. Uh, not but, by much. Not uh, by much. I don't know. <laughs> but I'll tell you, you know, I think that underlying theme of off the earth for the earth is, is so great because everything we're doing there. I, I mean, we have, I think there's over now, you know, roughly 500 active research activities going on at any given mm-hmm. time on the on the space station yep that cross pretty much any area of science you can think of and certainly you know the human body how our bodies behave in that environment how are we going to live in a healthy way there while we're doing right. the research that's you know going to help us on earth and help us explore further this you know, is everything from growing tomatoes to glaucoma to, to yes. like, it's everything in between. Yeah. It's, it's 500 fuels. different things. Yeah. Yes. Fuels. How do we, how do we right. create more, you know, fuels that burn more efficiently and pollute less? Right. I mean, there's this combustion chamber on the space station that I think is so cool. And I remember working on this thing and, and thinking, man, does anybody know about this? 
Right. <laughs> because when you look inside the space station, you see all these kind of sterile walls and panels and cables and computers everywhere and stuff. But you don't really get a really great sense of the things that are going on behind those panels, right? right? And there's this combustion chamber that every day there's some mix of different kinds of fuels burning in there, like these spherical looking flames burning inside of this. Well, we know, we know why people don't talk about this because it's a little terrifying too. <laughs> but that's why it's in this big, this chamber, you know, right, and it's, they've yeah. got it all, it's all, it's all packaged the way that it needs to be to do this up there. Right. And there's, there's ways to get video into the, the chamber to see the way, you know, these fuels burn and how they're burning. And, and it's kind of this, you know, this whole idea of why we go there anyway to do this research is because we can take gravity out of the equation. We can look mm -hmm. at things. It's kind of like looking at Earth from space. It's this whole new perspective on it, learning things about it we didn't know. And the same thing is true when you look at a, you know, a ball of flame burning on, on the space station <laughs> is because you can look at it and the way it mixes and how it, how it burns in a, in a whole new way than you can down here on Earth with gravity having its effect on it. Right. And that, like you said, everything from how a tomato grows because of that influence of, you know, gravity not acting on it mm -hmm. to the way these flames burn, to the way our bodies respond to it, to the way even on it, this, this is such a cool level of it to me is, and I, I found this when talking to Serena on a chancellor, Dr. Dr. Serena, uh, mm -hmm. when, when I was interviewing for the book, I knew that everything in one way or another, will help us improve life on earth. But what she told me that was so extraordinary was that 70% of the medical type of research that we do on board the space station is driven like primarily by the fact that it will improve life on earth. Right. And that's, that's pretty spectacular to think about. You know, it will also help us as we want to explore further off the planet. But the whole point of it was to improve life on earth. The, right. That's you know, sort the of the baseline here. Yeah. Right. And right. so, <laughs> so it's like, and then she went on to tell me about how cells and protein crystals grow in this microgravity environment in a way that we can't recreate here on earth. That's so it, they grow in the three dimensions like they would in our own bodies. And you can't do that in a Petri dish where all it will lay flat. You know, mm -hmm. the gravity just takes over and the cells lay flat and grow. Gravity is this like force of the universe that it you is. can't it remove is. from the equation. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's what's holding us to the planet. It's what right. keeps our air, you know, and that it's thin expensive. blue line around us. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 it's painful sometimes, you know, I mean, all these things. And yet by going to this place like the International Space Station, taking it out of the equation and allowing these cells to grow in the way they would naturally inside of our bodies and in this three-dimensional way, what Serena said was she's like, it's like we have all these little miniature crew members here with us. Right. That we can look at the effect on ourselves by looking at it through these tiny cellular three-dimensional you know, beings. <laughs> if you yeah. will, on the space station. They're space and, explorers too, for their are. own species. They are. Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. And, and because of that, we can then, you know, perturb them in ways and apply pharmaceuticals to them and see, you know, see how that will translate to um, what it's like in the human body. 
And, um, and then the extension of that, I mean, I could ramble all, you know, all day on this stuff, Robin, you know, don't spoil your book, spoil the book, but okay. there's this, you know, other things that people, these tissues on a chip, have you heard about that? Yes. Okay. So that's an, I encourage everybody to go look at this, but it's, it's incredible. And to me, it's especially significant because I am a totally not, I don't want the first animal ever to be used (laughs) for scientific research, right? And the things that are being done now with tissues on a chip, with growing cells, you know, individual cells in a space environment to get that three-dimensional perfection of them that we can't get here on earth. It's allowing us to do that, to take these other creatures out of the, the process, especially when they have not been you know, it hasn't been as valuable as, you know, science needs it to be, you know, let's not use them. Let's use tissues on a chip. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I answered your question, but <laughs> that, I, I think, think the other big thing, Robin, is that everything we need to measure here on this planet to understand yeah. how we do implement the solutions to the problems right. is happening through whether it's the satellites um, and the data we're collecting through satellites or the the sensors that we have on the space station and and also the way we measure those kinds of things for our own survival within the space station as well. Of course. And I think you did answer the question. And I think the point was that it's something that people don't realize is that yeah. the baseline for the experiments that we send to space are, can this improve our lives here? Yeah. That is where we start with this with this stuff. So that answers the question. Yes, I think that doing these experiments in space is extremely valuable. And it does give us a new understanding of biology yeah. um, and medical science and pharmaceuticals, et cetera, et cetera. Everything down to lettuce. And, and to me, I think NASA announced the other day that they grew like peppers or something. Yeah. Um, so the taco recipes are getting really exciting <laughs> on the space station. <laughs> and that's really exciting for people yeah. like me who love tacos. And Nicole, really quick. I always try to tell people this, but tacos are like the mainstay on the space station, right? And and yeah, the filling might vary, (laughs) but the tortilla is absolutely a mainstay. And it's it's, it's so cool because, you know, I never would have thought of squirting honey into the middle and rolling up a tortilla around it to, you know, (laughs) as kind of a dessert or, you know, others might have. Right. Yeah. Pretty much anything you, you can it's out, it's, it's, it's very easy to handle there. Let's yeah. just put it that way. And it okay. doesn't get little crumbs everywhere. And so right. that's good. See, and- I told you all that <laughs> is the main food of there. Um, anyway, we'll move on. I wanted to talk about the situation on the ground because I know that for your book, Nicole, you interviewed leaders in environmental movements and NGOs here on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And you were you were trying to talk about the relationship between the environment and the economy. Can you explain that component of your book to us? Yeah, I think th- so. This was, a, you know, essentially through a conversation I and an introduction I had to, and it came out in in several of them. But the the point of this one was through an interview with a gentleman named Mark Tursek, who was the CEO of the Nature Conservancy for quite a few years. And this is a man who did not grow up as a nature boy. That and he'll say that himself. He actually grew up in a place where the, the Cuyahoga River caught fire, you know, when he was growing up again because of how much pollution was in wow. there. And that was not the first time. I think it was the last time, but it had happened over the years multiple times because of how polluted this river was. And, you know, that was a time where the 
along with Earthrise, like the EPA was just getting going and right. Clean Air and Clean Water Act were coming, you know, out because of these things. But his whole thing, which was so interesting to me, and I hadn't thought about this way before, was that, you know, he was a guy who was a, a Goldman Sachs, like a senior, you know, moneymaker kind of guy, had real talent with that and had an epiphany moment in Costa Rica with his family where he's like, oh my gosh, we should be looking at nature the same way we look at, <laughs> you know, our other resources, our other right. commodities. And we should be looking at it from the standpoint of we need to protect it for us, not from us. That's a right. big, big difference, right? Right, right. Like taking and, ownership of this. Yes. Of and, our home, right. And, you know, and looking at it from the standpoint, okay, what is this you know, this return on investment, this value of nature, which, you know, in the simplest sense is nature is our life support. It's painfully system, right? obvious, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, it becomes crystal clear in a very simple way. And yet we sometimes don't register those simple things. Right. And he like completely shifted his whole, you know, approach to the work he was doing and his like commitment in life to this, to, you know, encouraging and still is, you know, this idea that we need to be looking at how we take advantage, not in a negative way of right. the nature around of us uh, to right. ensure, you know, our quality of life can continue and improve. And that we understand that that is key to any business being successful, even right. at the simplest level. You know, if you can't survive, there's nobody to sell your product to. It's <laughs> true. Know, if you want to look right. at it just like that. And then yeah. on the grander scheme of longevity will come through the respect you have for the life support system around you and how you build that into your business. And that's me really oversimplifying, mm -hmm. but it's kind of inherent to all of it. I mean, it's, it goes back to your original question of, you know, is the planet going to survive us kind of thing? Right. And, and it will, and perhaps life will show up again. But if we want to survive, if we want to thrive, we have to look at how nature, even at the tiniest level, <laughs> <laughs> is is supporting our life now i guess speaking more locally i would say that our space company is going to adapt this <laughs> um sort of thinking as well i mean there's been i mean we're talking years from now but thinking about humans on colony ships and humans on long duration flights is this going to apply to that feature how do we ensure that space companies and even nasa prioritize the health of, you know, people. We're seeing a lot of ordinary people going to space now. Yeah. You know, how, how do we how do we carry that on? You know, it, do you think the space program is in a place right now where people are at the forefront of the priority and, and safety and health, et cetera? You know, I don't know if I can speak to that 100%, but I, from what I see, you know, what, whether it's through companies looking at alternative, you know, fuels. Right. For spacecraft, whether it's looking at how do we lift the way we get to other places off the planet, you know, to where we're not launching all the time from Earth, but we're looking at that and doing it from a more the more benign environment of space. And then as we do that, I mean, you know, more and more, there's an awareness and a drive to figure out how do we how do we manage this space debris thing that's going on right. that has kind of you know fallen out of our our presence in space, right? right? And how do we not just figure out how to clean that up, but how do we proactively build into our missions, you know, a way for it not to happen in the first place? It's kind of like what we're having to do down here on earth, right? With 
you know, I mean, think about the plastic straw, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, you know, we can figure out all day long and we need to how we clean that stuff up out of the ocean and out of our soil and out of our air. But we need to figure out how do we replace that with something that's more sustainable. Right. And don't and make sure it doesn't end up anyway. there in the first place. Yeah, right. right don't right, right, don't right. get it there in the first place. Same thing right. is true in space. Right. And then I think we're not only obligated, but I think it's going to be a necessity to do that, you know, to do like the sustainable exploration. When you start talking about going further off the planet, longer duration flights, smaller spacecraft. I mean, I'd like to think that when we head to Mars the first time, we'll have that beautiful spaceship they had in the Martian. But yeah, that's but not happening. They will not. <laughs> they will not. I mean, so we have to think about everything in a more sustainable way, whether that's right. the trash we're generating, the food, the way we do food in that spaceship, the way we right. exercise, the way we, you know, do our communication, everything about it is going to have to be done in a much more resourceful way. And so right. it's going to drive us to that. And then when you get to Mars, you know, it's not like this place that's welcome you with you with all the resources that Earth has provided for us, right? It's the <laughs> oh. complete opposite, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're going and we're going to have to treat it again, treat it like that mechanical life support system, you know, that's the ISS. We have yeah. to figure out how to utilize the, the resources that are there. But for the most part, we're having to create that ourselves. And that's going to re- require a sustainable approach to those things. Right. Now, Nicole, did you finish your book? during the beginning of COVID or was this a COVID project? You know, never was. Well, I don't think anything was ever intended to be a COVID project because (laughs) I don't think any of us would have wished the COVID thing on us to, you know, to be there to do these projects. The bulk of it, the real writing of it was Mm -hmm. pretty much right in parallel with the height of COVID. I had finished the proposal before then. I had publisher, you know, agent and all that stuff online before. But but the the reality of the writing was Mm -hmm. right smack dab in the middle and throughout it. So how did that incorporate into your book? And obviously you address COVID in some form, but how did that sort of evolve with the writing? Yeah, it did. I mean, I think there's places in the book where if if there hadn't been the COVID thing, I wouldn't have, well, I certainly, I mean, I guess just, I wouldn't have related it to it in that way. But I think mm-hmm. by being able to relate it, it might make it more approachable and, you know, people reading the book could establish a relationship that, that they wouldn't have otherwise. And that's, you know, that's with things like, you know, the isolation for sure, but also comparing, you know, stories of being in quarantine and how I had to deal with my family and friends when that was going on for right. space flight, you know, where, where COVID was not even a, a thought in our minds and being able to set some parallels there. And then certainly thinking about, you know, the way we travel to space in the future, we're going to have to think about how we manage what we bring with us, not just physically in terms of food and our supplies, but what we bring with us from a kind of bacterial standpoint as well. Right. Sounds kind of like a sci-fi movie when you put it that yeah, way. Yeah, there's probably one out there <laughs> already. Yeah. <laughs> or one um, being made because of it. <laughs> right. Nicole, you and I were both down in Florida a couple of weeks ago for the Inspiration4 mission. Yeah. An all-private launch to orbit for three days. We both were down there uh, doing different things. What's your just overall thought on the mission and where it's sort of headed in spaceflight, you know? Yeah, this mission, I mean, you know, before I even knew who the crew members were, you know, when, when Jared was just getting this thing going and it was this like, I know you guys were reporting on it, stuff was little tidbits were coming out, right? Right. And I really love, it makes me smile when I think about this, this mission because there was such thoughtfulness 
to it, right? The way it was pulled together, everything from the the three people that ended up flying with Jared, mm-hmm. the four pillars of leadership, generosity, prosperity, and hope that I think were absolutely embedded in everything that was done for this flight. The you know the support of St. Jude, the artistic kind of creative way that that they communicated who they were and what they were going to do. I, I'm really hopeful that <laughs> you know flights like this in the future will incorporate at least some element of what went into this inspiration for flight. If that makes sense, it does, and I, I'm sure you were happy to see art and design being such a big component to Dr. Proctor and all the cool stuff that they were doing on Dragon. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, we, with the work with the Space for Art Foundation, we approached early on to say, hey, and and our our idea was more from the standpoint of, hey, we'd like to get to know the folks at St. Jude because all the work we do with the Space for Art Foundation, I mean, it all started with kids in cancer treatment, you know, in hospitals, refugee centers around the world. Right. You know, with the goal of, I mean, our, our motto there is, you know, uniting a planetary community of children through the awe and wonder of space exploration and the healing power of art, you know, so space themed art therapy stuff. Right. Right. And it felt important to us that, man, we can take that whole approach and we can get the kids at St. Jude involved with this. So they feel like they're part of the crew. Right. We right, give them right. some kind of artistic mission to go along with what was going to, you know, happen on the mission itself. And that evolved really nicely from. You know, we did stuff with the kids. We created these tote bags where they could do their own art and they had some mission stuff in it. And then we were welcomed by the crew to do work with them where we we made these art jackets out of St. Jude kids artwork. I saw Um, them. I mean, they are so cool. Oh my gosh, people go look at it. And there's still two more up that'll be up for auction. Jared and Chris's are going to be auctioned off at some point, but they're stunning. And it brings like to life the kids, you know, that are involved. It ties them right in with the flight. Our team at Space for Art like did the whole layout of the artwork on the jacket and the crew loved it. And then I don't know if you're familiar with a, a guy named Ryan Nagata. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've met Ryan, I'm sure, yes. who is like it probably does the most high quality spacesuit replica stuff that's ever I been I follow done. him on Instagram. He was down at Cape Canaveral. Yeah, he was with us. Yeah, he's a, an amazing <laughs> artist who yeah. creates spacesuits and yeah. just follow him on Instagram. Yeah. Follow, uh, follow him. It's, it's incredible. So you put, incredible him, you put yeah. him together with our one of our artists, Ian Sion, on the Space for Art team who like did the layout of all the artwork. And then you put Ryan on board who has the patterning and just built like hand built all four of these jackets for the crew. And it was just, and to see the crew on board, you know, they, we got the pictures after the flight and, you know, Jared did this video talking about the jackets. And I mean, to me, it was, it was just a really great example of how the four of them came together, how they really lived out those four pillars, how, Right. They very obviously enjoyed each other. You know, it wasn't like four people that got stuck no, together. They and became like, friends. The and it just, you know? yeah. And, and I'm sure you could speak to this. I mean, going through the training and going on this a journey together, you mm-hmm. do really form bonds. I know how close you are with, yeah. you know, your, your astronaut comrades. And it's just, there's a, a camaraderie that's built. Yeah. And that's and like inherent in space. Flight. Even before the flight, you know, right. and then, you know, you get the four of them in space together. Right. Who obviously like each other even right. before they flew. And you open that 
little hatch up to the the cupola window they had on board and they'll be they'll be bonded for life now (laughs) you know through that experience there's no denying it now nicole not to put you on the spot but (laughs) would you go dragon i would yes okay orbit or space do you want space station orbit what what do you think yeah (laughs) both yes to both okay Yes to both. Yeah. Okay. Now, I don't so, want to, I, well, I, this is kind of, kind of bad. I, I, I wouldn't want to take your seat, Robin, because I, I want to see more and more people go, but I would, I would gladly go. Um, and, um, I, I was just going to yeah. say, I hope I can go with you. Yeah. That would be awesome. That would, <laughs> that's where, you know, and when I look at the last few people who've been going to space and I, I see a very diverse background, I, I think that people like myself will have the opportunity to go to I space. And, and that's really all I want to see, whether to me or not, or I really want to see one of my friends in the space community, an artist, a photographer, a designer, yeah. go to space. That would be my dream. Well, you know what's so cool about that? It's like kind of when I when I did that painting in space, you know, that really became kind of a pivotal thing for me as I was leaving NASA and what was I going to do next? Right. But as I considered that after, and we've talked about this before, it's like, these are the things we're doing that put, like the jackets and the way the Inspiration4 crew approaches, like this is the human in human spaceflight, right? right? It's a spirit. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And the more flavors of people we get in Mm -hmm. that place, experiencing Earth and our home from that vantage point. And yes, we all argue that, you know, what's going to go on in Glasgow for the UN Climate Change Conference, if only those leaders could be floating in front of the cupola window on the station and right. their little heads bouncing together and right. experiencing, feeling what that's like to, yeah. to see Earth that way. Very similar to what Edgar yeah. Mitchell said, yeah. like these oh, sons yeah. of bitches, show yeah, them absolutely. Earth from the moon or something yeah. and get them enlightened. And yeah, that um, sentiment has not changed. No, no, it has not at all. <laughs> Nicole, we're, we're running out of time here. Sadly, okay. you and I could actually go on for hours. We know this, but back to earth, what life in space taught me about our home planet and our mission to protect it. Nicole, what's the best place for people to pre-order this right now or, you know, buy it, find it. Where can yeah. we, where can we do that? Well, I mean, you certainly can go to the website back to earthbook.com and there's links Great. to all the booksellers. I, you know, your favorite bookseller online will, will have it. And I encourage people, if you pre-order, to also look for the, the link on that Back to Earth book website that will take you to a place where you can fill out a form and they will then we will send you a signed, beautiful signed book plate to, oh, to go along with the book. Cool. Okay. And yeah, I, you know, thank you, Robin. I really hope that people will read this, that, you know, that like me through the experience that, that everyone will find their own call to action as crew members, you know, right. the, you know, not passengers here on Spaceship Earth and and we we have the power to figure this all out. We do. We absolutely do. And Nicole, yeah. please shout out your foundation and how do people, you know, get involved with art ah. and space and Thank you. Yeah, it's the Space for Art Foundation. You can find us on the the interweb at spaceforartfoundation.org <laughs> and Instagram, all the all the socials at at Space for Art Foundation. And yes, please join us. Please follow along. There's going to be a number of opportunities i think coming up for for more and more people to get involved and we're really looking forward to our next project that's in the works right now ilc dover our you know the spacesuit company is building mm-hmm. the next in the series of art spacesuits no way yes it oh, includes, that sounds awesome. and, and that's you know wow. that's what we're bringing to 
to Glasgow in November. The Suit Beyond has at least artwork from at least one child in every country on the planet. Oh my God. And Beyond will be there as I don't even, how how did you pull that off? How do you Uh, pull that off? You you reach out to everyone you know. That's insane. And so Beyond's going to be the ambassador for Spaceship Earth with this whole idea of how we bring together, you know, just this relationship between planetary and, and personal health and you know, just share that message a little bit more in a, in a pretty cool artistic way. I cannot wait to see the suit there on the move. <laughs> I cannot either. Show them what we're made of, Nicole. Yeah. Perfect ambassador for the entire yeah. uh, program over there. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Supercluster Podcast. You can find Nicole on Instagram and Twitter. We will be updating on uh, the various activities. I'm sure the Glasgow stuff will be online somewhere. We'll try to share it on Twitter. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for being on the show again. We hope to work with you again in the future. And as you know, cheap shout out, you can find Nicole in the astronaut database <laughs> along with <laughs> along with crew. And uh, Nicole mentioned earlier that, you know, those creatures are part of the crew sometimes or all the time. And that is why we include them in the astronaut yes. database. Excellent. <laughs> Such Excellent. an integral part. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Rob and I look forward to talking to you again sometime.